Amen. Amen. Come on, you can clap. So good. So excited for them. I hope, too, if you see someone that was baptized after the service, you don't have to know them. You might have just seen them for the first time. I Just go up to them and tell them congratulations. Give them a hug, a high five, a handshake, but just let them know that you're excited for them and that you care about them and that commitment that they made. And I trust, too, that their courage tonight might have inspired some of you and uh, you're going to be in that water with us before you know it. So, hey, I just want to give a quick shout out to, we had our annual business meeting this past Sunday, if you were with us. It's a big meeting for us every year, just celebrating God's goodness. Again, it was the biggest giving year in the history of the church. That happens for us every year. It's, a, it's incredible, <laughs> incredible. Not just with the offerings for tithes and things for operations, but it was the biggest giving year for missions again, and so we're trusting that this year is just going to continue to advance God's kingdom here in the 757. We also, I don't know if they're here tonight or not, Jason and Amy Kearney, but just another shout out for them. Just uh, We're just so thankful. They've been a part of this church from the beginning. They were a part of the plant team that came from Williamsburg 14 years ago, and they've held a position of senior leadership in the church for 14 years. And so they're stepping back from their role as elders, not because there's something that's wrong, uh, but because something's right. And, uh, and leaders sometimes need a break. And so if you know Jason and Amy, when you see them, I hope that you will also give them a hug, a handshake, or a high five, and just say thank you to them for the weight that they have 14 years, 14 years for the weight that they carried. So we honored them, the Nowatney, same at the Suffolk campus, uh, doing the same thing, and we honored them at the business meeting. And so I just, for all of you who weren't there, I just wanted to mention them and to say thank you to them publicly for the work that they have done. And they're going to continue to do here at City Life Church. So how about Pastor Jeff last week? So good listening to that podcast. Appreciate all the kind words he, he said. He read it exactly like I wrote it. And so, uh, but uh, he is a good friend and a, uh, a good partner in, in ministry. And so we're thankful that Catalyst is here, uh, a part of what's happening here. This, this, this vision, this dream that we have of churches can work together. We don't have to agree on everything. They say, we're going to be talking about that tonight. But we agree on enough to work together and stand for Christ in our city and in our world. So we are in a series uh, it's called Project Here. It is based on a Hebrew word that you find in the Old Testament called Shema, S-H-E-M-A. And even though you don't see this word in the New Testament, you find the concept there over and over again as we shared a few weeks ago when we launched this series. And the idea of this series is that we want the reflex of our heart to be one of obedience to God. The reflex. Meaning that when God asks something from us, that the, in, the natural instinctive inclination of our heart is to obey. I love what Pastor David was talking about his daughter when she's hungry. There was a reflex. Right? There was an instinct to cry out. I don't know if you saw Shanika taking Ryan out. Love that little girl. She's down there. It's Chris's daughter, and she comes in, and she's like, no, I want to be up there with my father, Right? There's a, right, there's a reflex. She, just, she sees him. I want to be with my dad. There should be something inside of us towards God that it is a reflex. There should be a Shema that defines us all the days of our lives. For all of us, there are areas in our lives where we are rebellious. For all of us, there are areas in our lives where we are reluctant and for all of us, there should be areas in our life where we are reflexive, 
We talked about in the series the idea of back in the day when you would go for a physical and they would do the patella reflex test. I feel like so much of our journey in this life is the Holy Spirit interacting with us, probing our heart to, to see if we would be responsive to him. Now, I'm going to be especially rebellious tomorrow morning when my alarm clock goes off around 3.30 because I'm getting up to be a traffic ward for the One City Marathon, and I'm a little salty tonight because I'm realizing that many of you who answered my call on social media to join me, that something happened. I think the people that were running the website for Newport News were also running the software for the Iowa Democratic Caucus, and... Uh, and, and uh, so people have been coming up to me tonight saying, when are we going to get the email where we're supposed to be tomorrow? And I'm like, I think that means you're off the hook. And Scotty Moriarty and I, I think, might be the only two city lifers who actually got an email. So I don't know what hidden sin Scotty and I have in our life that <laughs> all of you all got off. If you see what looks like to be a statue of me in the city as you ride by, that's actually me frozen because it's supposed to be the coldest day in the year. So, Scotty, we must not be living right. So, if you see me, bring me coffee and Krispy Kreme donuts, and all will be well. All will be well. So, this is the diagram that we're working through together. I'm going to be showing you this for the whole series, and we're going to come back to it later. But the idea is that we've got to, as, as devoted followers of Christ, we should close the gap between listening and doing. Again, in the Hebrew language, there is no word for obey. It does not exist in the Hebrew language because the idea is that if you listen to someone and authority over you that you trust and believe in, that obedience should necessarily follow. It's a reflex. But for many of us, there is too much of a gap between listening and doing. Matthew 7, 24 to 29, which is the closing of the Sermon on the Mount. That's where Jesus talks about building our lives on the solid rock. He's talking about Shema. And each week, we're going to work through one of these conversions. To converge, conversion means to change. And, and if our heart's going to change, there has to be something that we experience that brings about transformation. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about a religious conversion, how we need the Holy Spirit in our lives if we're going to transform and change and move closer to a life of Shema, one of obedience to God. Tonight, we're going to talk about an intellectual conversion that we need. And then in the weeks to follow, we'll be working through each of those to come. So Father, tonight, as we dig into your word, I pray that as we so often do, that your word would dig into us. We know that tonight and many of these weeks are difficult because they are confrontational as your truth often is for us. Father, I pray, God, that we would not just embrace the parts of your word that make us feel warm and comforted. I pray that we would embrace the parts of your word that convict us and call us to change. I pray that we would embrace the parts of your word that want to cut away things in us that do not belong. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said, amen, amen. Mark 4, 38 to 41, Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion, and the disciples woke him up shouting, teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? And when Jesus woke up, he, listen to what it says, he rebuked the wind and said to the wave, silence, be still. And suddenly the wind stopped. The wind did not say, what do you think we should do here? The wind did not say, did any of you recognize that guy in the boat screaming at us? Suddenly, suddenly, God wants us to live a suddenly life in our relationship with him. Suddenly the wind stopped 
and there was a great calm. And then he asked them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And the disciples were absolutely terrified, right? Now, they, before they were terrified because they thought they were going to drown, now they're terrified because they're really coming to understand who Jesus is and who this man is in their presence. And so they asked this question, who is this man? They asked each other, even the wind and the waves obey him, Shema. Mark 3, 11 through 12, and whenever those possessed by evil spirits caught sight of him, speaking of Jesus, the spirits would throw them to the ground in front of him, shrieking, you are the son of God, but Jesus sternly commanded the spirits not to reveal who he was. Every time you find Jesus have an encounter with an evil spirit, the evil spirit does not have a choice as to whether or not they will comply. So my question tonight to myself and to you is this, is are the oceans and the demons more obedient to the Father than you and I have been throughout our lives. See, I think one of the reasons why Jesus demonstrated his power in such profound ways over sickness, over death, over nature, over sin itself, is not just to demonstrate his divinity, and that's certainly part of it. I think he was also doing it to cause those things to demonstrate for us how we're supposed to respond to him. That which he creates, because he is our creator, he is our sovereign, there should be something inside of us that cannot help but to say to him, yes. Not reluctantly, not hesitantly, not with pause, not with delay, but with reflex. The condition of our heart should be Shema. And this series is about asking ourselves the hard questions about what kind of transformation needs to take place in me so that I can get to that place. That if there were a story written about us, like we find in Mark 4 or in Mark 3, if there were a story written about us, about our lives and about our interaction with Christ, would it be suddenly for you and for me, and I hope that it will. As you know from this series launch, I talked about this book that I've been reading called Moses in Pharaoh's House that introduces us to these conversions. And again, tonight we're going to be talking about intellectual conversion. So let me define that a little bit, and then we're going to dig into it. Intellectual conversion requires one to adopt an attitude of contrite fallibleness that acknowledges the limited nature of one's personal view of the world. Let me read it again. Intellectual conversion requires one to adopt an attitude of contrite fallibleness that acknowledges the limited nature of one's personal view of the world. Contrite fallibleness is the key phrase in that statement because you need both. Fallible means that, that you're capable of making mistakes. And for some of you, that might be your revelation tonight. And it's not enough to just recognize that you're fallible, it's contrite fallibleness. Because if you're just fallible, it means that, which all of us have been this, we've been wrong, but we don't care. Contrite fallibleness means that I am capable of being wrong, and it saddens me when I am. Now, if you don't believe that you're fallible and you're just contrite, that's a problem too, because that means that you are remorseful that everyone else is always wrong. And that's even a bigger problem. Contrite fallibleness. People who are actively engaged in an ongoing process of intellectual conversion 
exhibit a love of truth that transcends any particular belief that they might have. People who are actively engaged in an ongoing process of intellectual conversion exhibit a love of truth that transcends any particular belief that they might have. Now, I know that makes some of you nervous, and we're not talking about embracing relativism tonight. We're going to talk about where these exceptions fall. The problem is, for many of us, for many of us, we're not willing to embrace the truth when we are the ones, in fact, who are wrong. This idea of an intellectual conversion means that you are not as right as often as you think you are, and it also means that it might be that what you think the Bible is saying is not what God intended we're going to talk about those two tonight together. 1 Corinthians 13, 9 through 12. Now, our knowledge, listen to what he says here. Our knowledge is partial and incomplete. Fallibleness. And it's interesting that Paul says this after he's just given us the definition of love, which a big part of that is humility or being contrite. Right here in Scripture, it's talking about a contrite fallibleness. Now, our knowledge is partial and complete, and even if the gift of prophecy reveals only a part of the whole picture, even the gift of prophecy reveals only a part of the whole picture, but when the time of perfection comes, and that's not after until we leave here one day and are in heaven, if you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, these partial things will become useless, and listen to what he says, when I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. Again, that's once we arrive in heaven. But until then, we will never have perfect clarity because we are fallible. Listen to what he says. All that I know. He's speaking of himself. This is the Apostle Paul. Can we just write? This is the Apostle Paul. Probably the greatest theologian that's ever walked on the face of this earth. And he himself says of himself, all that I know is partial and incomplete. This is the man that God chose, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to give us the majority of the New Testament. So if he's willing to say of himself that he is fallible, how much more should we? And if we are devoted followers of Christ, we cannot be fallible and not be contrite because that is part of the character of our Savior But then he says, I will know everything completely just as God knows me completely. One day, we're going to have all of the answers, but we don't yet have them now. Listen to me. Arrogance, which is the opposite of contrite fallibleness, pushes others away, narrowing my community. Arrogance pushes others away, narrowing my community. Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. If you've ever seen iron sharpened with iron, there are sparks, there are flecks of metal that are, if you've ever, how many of you like, we like to watch the show Forged in Fire, anyone? Uh Uh-huh, yeah, that is the perfect picture of Christian relationship right there. (laughs) Loud, violent, aggressive transformative. You and I need people in our lives who are courageous enough to press us even when we don't think that we are wrong. Listen to me. There is no Shema without one another. You you and I 
religious conversion, you will not experience Shema without the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, as David talked about on the inside. And I would also say to you, you will not experience Shema unless you are immersed in a diverse community on the outside. We need to be sharpened. We need people to help us to see when we are wrong. I want to talk to you for a few minutes tonight about something I'm calling a corrupt confidence. A corrupt confidence. You and I should have a sense of confidence in this life. Confidence is healthy. Confidence is important. But when that confidence is corrupt, then it is self-destructive. Some of you, right? let's just, let's just do it. Say this with me. Say, I may not be as right as often as I think I am. If someone next to you was choking, just put your hand on their shoulder and tell them it's going to be okay. Somebody might need the Heimlich, right? They're just, they can't get it out. I think some wives just held up their phone and recorded their husbands there in that moment. But did you hear Vanessa? Yep, yep. See, if you're married, you already know this is true because your wife has already trained you. Yeah, right? I mean, come on, you know. Every argument you begin, you just don't know that you're wrong yet. But, but if you're new to marriage, you're going to get there, man. You're going to get there. Because you're not even arguing about what you think you're talking about to begin with. So you already start out wrong. I don't know. I'm working it out. I'm working it out. Corrupt confidence. Look at this diagram. When someone's right and someone's wrong, it might not begin here, but this is where it should always end, with kindness and gentleness. When someone's right and someone's wrong, it should get to a place always of kindness and gentleness. I understand sometimes there is emotion involved. I understand sometimes we're in passion. We're going to read a story just like that tonight between Jesus and Peter and it's okay to be impassioned as long as you're on the road to kindness and gentleness. Reshaping it, this idea in Proverbs of ironing, sharpening iron isn't about breaking one another, it's about sharpening one another. And it can feel like a breaking in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in the moment, but you know it's not a breaking, and I'm going to give you a list because you trust the heart of the person that's pressing you. Colossians 3 13 to 14 reads this way. Listen to this. Make allowances for each other's faults, which means that sometimes you're the one who's at fault because you may not be as right as often as you think you are. Make allowances for each other's faults, and listen to this, and forgive anyone who offends you. Anyone. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, Clothe yourselves with love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. 13 and 14, we could sum all of those verses up into two words. Contrite fallibleness. Contrite fallibleness. If you can't ultimately be kind and gentle, if your goal at the end is not kindness and gentleness, then you should just be quiet. You should just be quiet. I took French in high school and college. I don't remember a lot of it, but I remember one phrase in particular, ferme la grande bouche, which is in French, shut your big mouth. Yeah. 
Now, the circumstance by which I learned that phrase from my teacher is another story for another time. (laughs) Even if you are impassioned, even if you feel like that it's incumbent upon you to engage a person in a conversation that's about right and wrong, if your motivation is not ultimately to end up into a place of kindness and gentleness, then you're not ready to have that conversation yet. Matthew 16, 21. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly. This is important. He, was, he wasn't speaking in a parable. He wasn't speaking in, in metaphors or similes. He, he, was, he was just saying to them directly, I'm going to die. Plainly, that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, and that he would be killed. But on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. He's telling them this again and again. Now, we know that they did not hear him by their response after it happened. If if this verse wasn't given to us, we'd be left by their reaction of asking the question, did he tell them or was this just a surprise? Peter takes him aside. Now this is, right, Peter and Jesus, this isn't a new relationship. All these things that you have read about and heard about that Jesus has done, raising the dead, healing every manner of sickness, walking on water, you just, we can keep going again and again. He's seen Jesus do all of these things, and yet Peter takes it upon himself to decide that he's right and that Jesus is wrong. This is you and me so often in life. We are not as right as often as we think we are. But can we just give Peter some props here? He was absolutely convinced that Jesus needed his help. (laughs) Peter was certain. Peter was convinced. In fact, this is... The implication here is this is not the first time that Jesus has said to them, I'm going to die. He's, right, he's told, I, right, and Peter's, he's the leader. I, I guarantee you, off when Jesus is praying throughout the night and they're by the campfire talking, that they're saying to Peter, you got to do something. He keeps talking about dying. This, does he not understand what the Messiah is supposed to do? We've got to help him. Right? This is an intervention for them. And Peter's the one because... He's the leader of the 12. So Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. This is him saying, shut up. Ferme la grand bouche. This is him saying to Jesus, stop it. This fatalism, it's not becoming of you. This is not what the Messiah is supposed to be because these men, they knew what the Messiah was supposed to be because they had been steeped in study of what would have been as us today, but it's all that was then was the Old Testament. The Messiah was going to come in the line of David and reestablish his throne. It would be without end. They would vanquish their enemies and Israel would be restored to its golden years and it would usher in 
Not just political superiority, but religious superiority. And the world would come to know the worship of the one true God. They, they, they have a definition and a revelation that was taught to them for centuries, one generation after another, of what a Messiah was supposed to be. They were certain, but they could not have been more wrong. Always being unyielding pushes others away. Narrowing my community, stifling my spiritual maturity, pushing Shema further from me. Always being unyielding pushes others away, narrowing my community, stifling my spiritual maturity, and pushes Shema further away. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God. And then Jesus goes on to say, let's keep reading. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take your cross and follow me. And if you want to try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. What will it benefit to you to gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and judge all people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Yeah. And you know what I love about this story of these disciples? Is that even though... This is iron and sharpening iron. Even though someone calls someone else Satan, and I would say that you're not ever free to do that because I would say Jesus is the only one that's ever allowed, so don't take that home with you. I know you've thought it, but right there's the inside voice and then there's the outside voice. Those are separate things. Separate things. Is that you find this community of men back into a place of gentleness and kindness, even in the midst of conflict and controversy. You find these men back into a place of community. You find these men back in a place of affection and devotion. If you're not willing to end up into a place of kindness and gentleness, do not start the conversation to begin with. Let me, let me give you a list of what a contrite fallibleness looks like. Am I really listening to their point of view? Am I sensitive to the Holy Spirit? Am I open to the possibility that I'm wrong? Am I willing to sacrifice pride for honesty? Because oftentimes in arguments, when we begin to realize that we're wrong, we stay in the fight a little bit longer because we just don't want to lose. Or we don't want to lose to them, depending on who they are. This is a good list for us. Because when we're engaged in conversations that are about rightness and wrongness, especially when we are convinced that we are right, these are some of the things that we should begin to learn to ask ourselves. Am I really listening to their point of view or am I just thinking about when I'm going to fire back next? Listen to one another. Again, the Holy Spirit is there to help us even in moments like this. Be quiet, Fred. You shouldn't say anything else. When's the last time you were in an argument maybe with your spouse and you were so convinced that you were right and you felt the gentle whisper of the Holy Spirit 
you're wrong. Because if that's never happened to you, you're not listening for his voice. Am I open to the possibility? Every one of us, no matter how convinced we are that we're right, should go into the conversation with the belief and the acceptance, I might be the one that comes out on the other end of this thing with a changed mind. Am I willing to sacrifice pride for honesty? Corrupt confidence. Let's talk about the second one. I've got two tonight. Multiple meanings. Let's talk about multiple meanings. This is another important part of intellectual conversion. It might be that what I think the Bible says is not what God intended. Again, if Paul himself would say to you and to me, his knowledge is incomplete, then so is ours. So is ours. I'm not talking about clear moral doctrinal positions. We're not proposing relativism tonight. But what we're saying is that not everything falls into the category of universal truth. For most of us, our list is bigger than it's supposed to be. And can we just agree tonight that's one of the reasons why churches have a hard time working with each other because their list of non-negotiables is longer than it's supposed to be. And it pushes other people away. You understand what I'm saying tonight, right? If you continue to push other people away by being unyielding, by by lessening the community of people that are around you, that you end up in an echo chamber. And even when it's God himself trying to redirect you, you will not hear it because you do not have people in your life who love you enough to challenge you. And Shema will always stay far from you. One of the ways that we become obedient is not just through the voice of the Holy Spirit in us, but the voice of the Holy Spirit through others to us. I'm not talking about tonight about negotiating the Ten Commandments. Those aren't negotiable. I'm not talking about negotiating timeless didactic texts. Didactic texts are clear, instructive texts in the Bible that are not prophetic. Again, they're not metaphors, they're not parables, but it's just where oftentimes where Apostle Paul will give us a list, do not do these things. Or James gives us a list of do these things. Those are didactic texts. They are instructional and they are clear. Those aren't negotiable. Sins that lead to death. There are many lists in the New Testament. Much of society today wants to take things that are lists. And and even though at the end of the list, it it, it talks about a sin leading to death. Want to renegotiate the truth of those things. We're not willing to renegotiate those things. Orthodox Christian beliefs. The divinity of Christ, the depravity of man, the efficacy of the cross, the triune nature of God. These are orthodox Christian beliefs. These are not negotiable. But it doesn't mean that I have the right to be arrogant and unkind in my defense of them. Let me give you a list of open-handed beliefs. These are open-handed beliefs for me. They might not be open-handed beliefs for you. Meaning that I'm open to different people having different interpretations of these things. In Scripture, the consumption of alcohol. The Bible talks about not being drunk, but there's no prohibition against Proper use of alcohol within the limits of abiding by the law of the land. That might not be an open-handed issue for you. It's an open-handed issue for me. Leave that up to people's conscience. Limits on women in ministry. We don't put limits on women in ministry here. Can I just tell you, one of the things that I love about Catalyst Church is they put limits on women in ministry, but we do not. But that has not stopped us from working together. When I invited Jeff to come and speak, he didn't say, Fred, I can't come and speak there because you have women elders. 
And if I ever have the opportunity to, to speak at his church, I'm not going to say to him, I can't come to your church because you don't believe that women elders are biblical. Open-handed issues. Tithing. Being a New Testament principle, as much as it pains me to say that one. Open-handed issue. Spiritual language, being for everyone. We believe that here, but it's an open-handed issue. Sunday, the only day of worship, by the fact that you're here tonight. <laughs> I, yeah, thank you, thank you. Teenage dating. Yeah, we didn't do teenage dating in our house. It's an open-ended issue. You might have different ideas and different beliefs. I'm not going to say which kid it was, but we were at an event not too long ago, and, and there were some people that were kind of laughing and being flirtatious with one of my kids, and we were in a different group, and one of the friends from this group went over to that group and then came back over, and as that person was walking, said, hey, this person wants to know if you want their phone number, talking to one of my children, and I said, no, they don't. They don't. They don't. And they started giggling like I was making a joke. And then I, stepped st I kept staring at them. They're, they're not interested in that. And then all of a sudden you saw the expression on their face begin to change. And then they realized, I think that might be that person's father. <laughs> and then they just closed their circle up and began to drift away. Yeah. Divorce and remarriage. Different ch the church has harmed so many people with their teachings on divorce and remarriage. Whatever happened to grace? Whatever happened to grace? These are things, right? We, we could, if we had time tonight, that list could keep going on and on and on and on. It doesn't, listen to me, it doesn't mean that you can't have a firm conviction about what these things are supposed to be for you, but at some point you've got to make room for other people to have firm conviction about things like this that are different than yours. And you've got to make room for them. Always being unyielding pushes others away. Narrowing my community, stifling my spiritual maturity, pushing Shema further from me. We've got another list for you tonight. I'm trying to give you some practical help. When you're in a conversation with someone and you disagree and you're trying to figure out whether or not you should make room for their opinion, even though you don't agree with it, these are some questions that you should ask yourself. Can I support their motivation? Can I respect their process? Can I celebrate their character? And can I trust their friendship? Those are four great questions. Because if you can answer yes to all of those, you don't need to agree on the issue. You find agreement in your relationship. You find an agreement in the value that they bring to your life as a devoted follower of Christ together running after God. You, 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 you value the reality that that person being in your life is someone that loves you enough to not always tell you what you want to hear. Can, can I support their motivation? See, there are some churches who don't believe that women should, should be elders and pastors, and I endorse and support those churches because I believe that their motivation is not to suppress women. I believe that their motive, they honor women in every way. But there are other churches and other spiritual leaders, we're not going to name them, but many of them have been in the news as of recent with articles that they've written, things that they've said. I, I don't 
endorse and support them in their position because I don't trust their motivation because I believe that they are being oppressive and they're misogynistic. Do you understand the difference? What's their motivation? you got to ask yourself. you got to ask yourself, can I respect their process? If someone comes to a conclusion about something, again, about women as elders, if I can look at their hermeneutical process, which means it is, it is their process, the science of biblical interpretation is hermeneutics, if I can trust their hermeneutical process, then even if I don't agree, I can respect because I understand how they got there. Can I celebrate their character and can I trust their friendship? These are important questions that you've got to be willing to ask yourself if you're going to be in a relationship with people who have a different belief and a different opinion than you do. I believe this is one of the reasons why as a church that we're experiencing so much diversity. And I'm not talking about ethnic diversity. I'm talking about cultural diversity. I'm talking about political diversity. I'm talking about diversities of points of view that our church has because the things that I'm talking to you tonight about is the culture of this house. And it's the way that we respond and treat one another. I'm going to put that chart back up on the screen. I hope that this series is causing you to ask yourself some hard questions. I hope that you're, 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 you're being reflective. I hope that you're thinking about your life this past week and last month and last year or maybe even further back and, and that you're going to give some time to thinking about moments where you knew that God was asking you to do something but you said no to him. That's a lack of Shema in your life. It I think it happened to some of you tonight. I think when we were in worship and you saw a couple of people at this altar, Jeremy and Vic were up here. I think some of you, you wanted to come and you didn't. Shema. When you feel the prompting and the leading of the Holy Spirit, what I would say to you, you can trust him. He always has your best interest at heart. Some of you knew that we were doing water baptisms because we've been talking about it and, 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 and God wanted you to be up there and you chose not to. Shema. All of us have had moments and times in our lives and even now, certain areas of our life, we're complex people. Uh, we've got areas in our life where we're absolutely rebellious, areas of our life where we're reluctant, and then there's areas of our life where we are reflective. And in this life, what we're saying is let's get... This idea of being reflective, the umbrella over the majority of who we are. We're not going to get there all the way, but come on, let's make some progress together. And I'm telling you, intellectual conversion is one of the conversions, one of the changes that needs to happen in our lives. Because unless you have people, a diverse community that surrounds you, then there's going to be times where you're going to stand against God and you don't even realize you're doing it. And you need a friend who loves you enough to point you in a different direction. You invite the worship team to come back up. Let me read these four questions to you. These notes are always online every week, a PDF that you can download. I don't have these on the screen. Do I tend to see everything in life as either being right or wrong? It's a little test you can take. You with me? Do I tend to see everything in life as either being right or wrong? If the answer to that question is yes, then you're in need of an intellectual conversion. 
Do I deal well with diversity of opinion even when it is an area of great concern for me? Do I deal well with diversity of opinion even when it is an area of great concern for me? If you answer that question yes, then you're doing well. Do I consider other points of view before making a judgment? Okay, all of us, that's no. Do I consider other points of view before making a judgment? Okay, you ready for this? I don't know if you're ready for this next one. How many fundamental shifts in thinking have I undergone in my life? How many in the last year? It's weighty, isn't it? How many fundamental shifts in thinking have I undergone in life? How many in the last year? And if the answer to that for you is zero, you are in need of an intellectual conversion that's only going to come as you immerse yourself in a diverse community. Stand with me. Father, as we close out in this moment of worship, we acknowledge that we are desperate for you. And we are utterly incomplete without you. Father, I pray that every person that's here tonight would feel a sense of drawing not just to you, but deeper into your family. Because when you reconciled us to yourself through Jesus, it wasn't just about restoring our relationship with you. It was also supposed to restore our relationship with one another. And so I pray for the person that's here tonight that feels isolated. I pray for the person that's here tonight that feels alone. I, I pray for the person that's here tonight that feels like they've never been able to find a church to call home. God, whether it's here or somewhere else, that's not what matters to us. What matters to us, God, our prayer tonight is help them to find their family. Help them to find their family. A family that's not going to be an echo chamber. A, a, a family that's, that, that's not going to tell them what they want to hear. But a family that's going to walk in a relationship like Proverbs where when we need it, that when we need it, there's some iron around us to sharpen us. And that we would live our lives in such courageous ways that when it's our turn to be the iron that sharpens another, that we would be willing to clash on the way to kindness and gentleness. Change us. Shape us. Convert us. Let that diamond of listening, doing compress into a line where listening and doing overlap. And then you would be able to speak over us and our heart. Shema. In Jesus' name. Come on, let's worship together. If you need prayer, there's people here at the front and in the back.